0: om namo bhagavati sri chala ramanaya. Um, I received a couple of um, questions by email. Uh, the first question is, uh, I've heard it mentioned that Ramana never touched money transactionally. I wonder if this is true and if this, and if this example was a teaching or was it just specific to him? And did he say anything about participating in the system of money or striving for it? Um, Should we just accept this as part of uh, popular consensus in Western culture, especially regarding spiritual teachers charging money? Um, Yes, it is true. Bhagavan never touched money. Um, The reason for that, he, he is explained in a passage in talks, um in I shared this by email but I'll just uh, summarize it. Um in section 281 of talks um that records um uh that is the, a court case had been put against the ashram and rather than Bhagavan being summoned to the court the court came to Bhagavan uh to um to question him in relation to the court case so talks section 281 records that but um it's not it's not a very accurate uh, recording because if I remember correctly david godman managed to get hold of a court transcript of the questioning which was significantly different in many ways but i think what is this particular portion it more or less gives the uh, what is Bhagavan's attitude towards money? That is one of the questions he was asked was, um, according to this recording, this won't be his exact word, but it gives us a general idea. When you threw away your cash, etc., within an hour of your arrival in this place, you did so because you did not desire possessions. You never touch money. There were no possessions for several years after your arrival here. How is it that donations are now accepted by the ashramam and but to that bhagavan replied this practice grew up at a later stage because a few associates began to use my name to collect money i did not approve their action nor check them so it is going on one man leads another steps in but the process goes on i do not desire that contributions should be accepted But people do not heed that advice. I do not desire to give ineffective advice. I therefore do not check them. Since money comes in, property grows spontaneously. And then a bit further on in the same dialogue, he was asked, you do not not touch money nor other offerings I trust. And to which Bhagavan replied, people sometimes place fruits in my hands. I touch them. And then the next question is, if you receive one kind of offering, why should you not receive money also? To which Bhagavan replied, I cannot eat money. What shall I do with it? Why should I take that with which I do not know what to do? Um, so this, this gives us a, some idea of his attitude towards money. That is, as a sadhu, he had no need for money. In his uh, When he first came to Tiruvannamalai, um because in order to get the train ticket for the last leg of the journey he uh, had um he had pledged his earrings um with someone in uh, Tiracollo and received some money so with that money he bought a train ticket and he was also given some sweets um uh by by uh, that um that person so when he came to tiruvannamalai after visiting the temple he someone approached him and asked him if he wanted to have his head shaved for no apparent reason but it just so happened that's obviously all part of a divine plan so that person took him to a tank a tank means a pond some distance uh, outside uh, Well, in those days it was a little bit outside the town. Now the town has surrounded that area. That uh, tank is called Iankulum. So there he went, and uh, it's a pond, but it's a constructed pond. So it's got on all sides, it's got uh, stone steps leading down into the pond. And on the the banks of that pond, on the steps, uh, a barber shaved his head. And after his after he was uh, his head was shaved, he then <coughs> took off the uh, uh, dhoti, that is uh, the cloth he wore around his waist. He tore off a portion of it to wear as a loincloth. cloth. Um, he discarded his uh, sacred thread, which is the uh, all Brahmins and higher caste Hindus have uh, sacred thread. So he cast off that Doesn't mean that he's going beyond all. All castes and all such uh, worldly things. And um, the sweets he threw in the tank because there were fish in the tank, so the fish can eat the sweets. And the money he discarded. some In some books, it's written he threw the money in the tank. That is uh, very unlikely. I think he just would have left the money there for anyone to take because he had no need of it. So that was the last time Bhagavan ever touched money. After that, He, um, he well, for some time he was uh, being fed by people, but in late, once he moved up onto the hill, he used to go begging every day. Uh, he would, um, in later years, Bhagavan said there wasn't a street in Tiruvannamalai where he didn't beg in which he hadn't begged food. But as more devotees gathered around him, uh, he, the devotees who were with him, the sadhu devotees who were with him, they used to go begging every day. So it wasn't necessary for him to go, and they would they would collect. They would bring whatever food they begged. That would be brought to, in those days. Bhagavan was living in pakshi and that would be brought, and it would be distributed to everyone, including any visitors. Everyone took the same food. There was no. Uh, cooking in uh, in those days in the ashram. But uh, well, in, in, what ashram means, it was just the Rupachi Cape, it wasn't really an ashram. Uh, later, um, Kandaswami um, built Skandashram a little higher up the hill for Bhagavan um, because a, a, a spring appeared there and he thought that's a suitable place to build a, a small ashram. So Skandashram was built there and Bhagavan moved up there. Shortly, that was in about 1916, shortly before that, Bhagavan, um, Bhagavan's mother came to live with him. And it was only after she came that uh, cooking started in Yashram. Um, While they were, she lived with Bhagavan in Birupakshi cave only for a few months before they moved up to Skandashram. And during those few months, um, she one day wanted to make um Apalam, that's um, uh, what is more usually in Western countries called Papadom or Papad. Um, she wanted to make that because she, when Bhagavan was a child, he used to help her make that. And uh, she knew he was fond of that. So she thought it would be a good idea to make that. So she asked some um, some devotees, she told some devotees, Bhagwan very much likes Sir, Apalam. Uh, so I want to make for him. So she gathered all. So when people heard that, of course, they gave very generously. So she uh, gathered a huge amount of ingredients, enough to make several hundred apalam, and she started to prepare it. All this was known by Bhagavan, but he was just keeping quiet. He didn't approve of this, but he kept quiet until the day when she started to prepare. And because he used to help her as a child, she uh asked him to help her and um he said then he he took that opportunity he started to scold her he said if why did you ask for all these things who needs all these things if you come here here we uh we we live on whatever is given to us we don't go seeking asking for this special thing or that special thing if you want to, all these uh all these uh uh, special foods and comforts and luxuries—you can go back uh, to where you uh, to, to to your home. You need not be here. If you want to be here, you should live as we are living, as sadhus. Um, and and but. Uh, So she started making the aplomb by herself and several times she asked him and eventually he said, you make your own aplomb, I'll make my aplomb. And then he wrote the the aplomb song in which he uh, described the making of an aplomb, but he used that as an analogy uh, to give spiritual teachings. Um, Part of the reason he did that was... uh, his mother was very fond of such songs. There were very many such songs in Tamil in which Vedantic teachings are given in the form of homely things. Like in, in this case, it was the recipe for uh, making appalam. So that was the first time cooking started in, in the ashram. Once they moved up to Skandashram, slowly, slowly, partly because of Bhagavan's presence there, um, uh People, instead of giving cooked food, they started to give uh, uncooked uh, 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 that is uh, rice and um and dal and vegetables and things. and so cooking started in uh, really from Skandashram days. Um, uh but in those days, no money was ex- accepted um uh but once they moved down to the ashram at the foot of the hill um then slowly slowly this um this uh, habit of starting to ask people for money and um so devotees who 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 came to be the ashram they started to, to uh, contribute money and so money started to be collected um though ramanashram is called ramanashram it is n- it is It is not actually Bhagavan's ashram. That is, Bhagavan never wanted any ashram, never wanted any institution. The ashram was started by the devotees for the <coughs> devotees, for the convenience of devotees. They wanted somewhere where they could come and stay and uh, food and all these things. So everything grew up. It was all according to the wishes of devotees, not according to Bhagavan's wish. Bhagavan had no desire for any of these. He was a sadhu. He was very happy to live on whatever was offered. He didn't seek anything of his own accord. So this is the reason for his uh, for his not touching money. And, and as he said <laughs> very humorously, what can I do with money? I can't eat it, so why should I accept it? Um uh so yes, it's, it's true that Bhagavan never accepted money. Uh um, And uh, the question is: If this example was a teaching, yes, it is a teaching to all of us. That is, though our it's not that we we also shouldn't touch money because our circumstances are obviously different. But uh, that that attitude of not not asking for anything, not seeking to accumulate anything or to acquire anything, that is a teaching to all of us. Um, That is, as a sadhu. Bhagavan, that is, sadhus live depending on God. So whatever is given by God is uh, accepted, but we we, we we are not, that is, all a sadhu can beg for, uh, all about sadhu should beg for is for their food, nothing more than that. Um, and even that, it, the attitude of a, True sadhu is that whatever is given is given only by God. So they're depending, they're not even depending on the people, they're depending on God. Even though they're begging from the people, it's up to God whether people give them food or not. That is the attitude of a sadhu. Um, So, yes, this is a teaching to all of us. Though we obviously cannot. Uh, according to our circumstances, we we each have to adapt. But we the basic principles underlying that is a lesson to all of us. Um, but our circumstances are different, so obviously um, in society uh, we we need money. I mean, um, it, it, it's it's the means by which we live. Uh, the next question is: Did he say anything about participating in the system of money? Um, n- I don't know. I don't think he said anything specific. I mean, he he accepted, but for most people, that is, it, it's a necessity. It's the way society works. Um, but, but and also the question is: Or striving for it? Bhagavan never recommended, but we strive for any material thing. That is, he said, whatever is. Whatever is destined to be experienced by us will be experienced by us. So we we need not seek anything. If it is our if it is our destiny to uh, to to, uh, um, to to get any to experience anything, we will experience it. If it's not our destiny, we should not. So we should not be concerned about these things. It may be our destiny to live. By earning, and um, uh, and um, that's how most people live. So if that's our destiny. There's no wrong in it, but we shouldn't be striving in the sense we shouldn't be seeking to accumulate more than is required. Um, that we could, that we have to learn as an inference from what, it, from the example he set us. Um, and then the next question is. Should we just accept this as part of popular consensus in Western culture? It's not just Western culture. In in cultures all over the world since ancient times, um, in in ancient times, it was initially started off as a barter system. But then um, money became a convenient Convenient way, rather than direct barter, money became a a sort of intermediate, an intermediary for barter. So instead of um, me exchanging my um, my cabbages for your carrots. I sell my cabbage to someone, get some money, and then I go to you and I buy. I give you some money and buy carrots. So money is just a, it started as just a substitute or a more sophisticated way of uh, of uh, of barter. Um, and this is it's it's there throughout the, the world, and it has been since ancient times. Um, maybe in some very in some more primitive cultures, that money is not used. Um, but in most cultures, um, from ancient times, cultures have been used. But then the last part of the question is especially regarding spiritual teachers charging money. Anyone who charges money is not a spiritual teacher. A true spiritual teacher would never charge money. That uh, that that is um, it is it it's that is. Spiritual teachings are not for sale. They they shouldn't be sold. So anyone who is who is charging money for spiritual for uh, spiritual teachings is not a true spiritual teacher. Um, if, if a person is a true spiritual teacher, it will reflect in their. If, if if a person is truly spiritual, whether a teacher or not, it will reflect in their outward life. So we are we are not uh, if we are. Um, selling teachings is it's a business it becomes a business many spiritual teachers nowadays it's just a business they're running they're uh charge they charge for um for what they call satsangs or for this or for that and many of them accumulate a lot of wealth and build ashrams and uh, this is all just a business this is not true spirituality true spirituality we should live up to the ideals of spirituality and the ideals of spirituality but we 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 depend on god for everything we accept what come what is given unasked and if we happen to be in a uh, depending on our circumstances, we may have to work to earn money, but that's different to making a business of spirituality. So, um, and very, very nowadays there are some so-called spiritual teachers who claim to be in the lineage of Bhagavan, but they're charging money. So obviously, that that clearly proves that they're not in the lineage of Bhagavan because if they were truly well, Bhagavan didn't actually have any lineage, but they're not even following Bhagavan's example. Bhagavan never charged money for anything, and no true de- devotee of Bhagavan should charge for uh, sharing his teachings with others. So these those who, who, who charge money are not true followers of Bhagavan, that we can say very simply. Um, I hope that's an adequate answer to that question. Does anyone have any other questions they want to ask in relation to this? OK, the next question was asked by uh, Bish. Bish, would you like to ask your question?
1: Yes. Hi, uh, hi. Michael. Um, yeah. the. Question I have is, um, I mean, I mean, I've been uh, trying to understand uh, uh, the uh, knowledge of um, uh, self inquiry I mean, like you know how it originated and all that. Then I kind of you know came across other other ones uh, like in uh, like in uh, Shiva sutra or Adi Shankara and so on. I think uh, many of them I have already explained uh, some aspects of that. So I was kind of curious as to what attracted you most to the teachings of Ramana Maharshi. Like, you know, what was it uh, or or was he able to package it well or um, was he able to arrive at that after getting enlightenment? Because, you know, unlike others, I think he first got into enlightenment and then he came across all the other uh, Hindu scriptures and so on. And I'm kind of uh, fascinated that you spent almost uh, 20 years, I believe, in India, trying to understand all the all the teachings. So, I mean, I'm just uh, curious as to what aspect of the teaching attracted you the most. Or was it the person, I mean, was it the Ramana
2: uh,
1: Maharshi, the way he lived and the way he preached or practiced? Uh, what was your source of inspiration? I mean, why I'm asking it is, I mean, I know it may appear to be a personal, but then all of us are inspired, right? I mean, all of us are inspired. Uh, I mean, like there is this whole uh, Siva Purana where which talks about all the disciples who kind of achieved enlightenment. Then you have a book on, uh, on Ramana Purana, right? There are so many uh, of these. Uh, uh, visitors who had uh, gone to the Ramanashram and uh, it kind of explained their story. And all of this uh, serve a purpose to us in terms of inspiring us, right? Because all of us are on the path and um, all of us are aware of his uh, teachings, but then uh, we do attend all the satsangs. Why? Because we are constantly making some uh, uh, progress and we are constantly moving towards it. So I, I am inspired by all that you have done in terms of all the podcast in terms of explaining his uh, teachings and so on. So the uh, question in the summary is uh, what truly attracted you towards the teachings of uh, Bhagavan Ramana Maharshi? Um
0: Well, everything about Bhagavan attracted me, but what initially attracted me was... Um, I I have been traveling around India for about a year and a half, visiting so many places and reading books and so on. I was looking for something, but I didn't clearly know what I was looking for. When I came to Ramanashram, I knew very little about Bhagavan before coming there. When I came to Ramanashram, the first book I read was Who Am I? An English translation of Who Am I? probably wasn't a very good English translation, um, because many of the translations are not so good. And I I wouldn't have understood it very deeply, but what I did understand was enough for me. As soon as I read that, I understood this is what I've been looking for, because it was so simple and so direct and so to the point. That is, The center of everything is I. Our whole life is centered around I. If we don't know what we are, what is the value of all the other knowledge we have? Without knowing the truth of ourselves, how can we know the truth of anything else? So when I read it, it, even the little I understood was enough to convince me this is what I've been looking for. And then I read more and more about other books and things, and slowly, slowly, I went deeper into His teachings, and I came to know more about Bhagavan, uh, His outward life and everything, and everything about it attracted me. That is, uh, it is um, uh, Bhagavan is the magnet that draws me. Regarding what you, uh, that is, in the question you had written, you you wrote. His core teachings are already part of existing literature, Adi Shankara, Shiva Sutras, Vedantas. Um, yes and no. Um, what Bhagavan taught us is the essence of all Vedanta. Um, this is Shankara taught the same thing, but Shankara was teaching in a very different context. Uh, in those days, there was a lot of competition between so many different systems of philosophy. So, Adi Shankara had a mission to establish or to argue that uh, Advaita is the correct interpretation of Vedanta. So he wrote uh, Bhagyas on all the Prastanatraya. That's the the, the 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 principal Upanishads. Um, the uh, uh, Brahma Sutra and the Bhagavad Gita, and he also wrote other texts. Nowadays, scholars quarrel about which texts were actually by Adi Shankara or not. Uh, that we need not be concerned. But basically, he he wrote texts, but the, ma- the majority of his writings were bashas were commentaries, which were uh, which were interpreting the older texts and pointing out, but uh, interpreting them in the light of Advaita. So that was the mission of that Shankara had at that time. And um, since then, so many followers of Shankara have interpreted what Shankara did in different ways, and there were different interpretations. and um there, a way to be developed more and more into a philosophy rather than an actual practice. Of course, Shankara did indicate what is the practice. In Viveka Chidramani, for example, he said this cannot be attained, that is the, the knowledge of true self-knowledge cannot be attained by any number of, by even crores of karmas. No amount of action can enable us to attain it. It can only be attained by, Vastu Vichara, investigating the reality. Um, But what though he often used this term Vichara, what he meant by Vichara is generally not correctly understood. People think that by but Vichara means studying the text and um, and uh, thinking about the text, interpreting the text. They think this is Vichara, but so. What Bhagavan has brought is Bhagavan has highlighted the practical implications of all of Vedanta, including all of Shankara's works, and Bhagavan has... Because Bhagavan's teachings are practic- are focused on practice, right? Bhagavan did teach philosophy, but, but, but whatever philosophy Bhagavan taught, it all was extre- extremely practical. What, that is, whatever Bhagavan taught us, it all had practical implications. So what what was lost in, in the old, that is, what had been lost was the what is the practical implication of all these things. So Bhagavan came to um, to highlight what is the practice of of Vedanta, the practice of Advaita. It is the simple practice of self-investigation. And he made it clear what is self-investigation. We cannot, as he says in the 16th paragraph of Nana, which we talked about a few months ago, uh, he points out there we cannot know ourselves by studying books. Any number of books we may study, we cannot know ourselves because ourself is the books are outside the five sheaves. We ourselves are inside the five sheaves. So we have to set aside the five sheaves and set aside everything outside in order to go within to know ourselves. So this idea, but by but we can know ourselves. This is an idea that's very prevalent among um, uh, among so called Advaitins that we can know ourselves by studying the texts, uh, all these texts. But that is the, 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 the Vedanta, is a prasthana, it's a means to knowledge. Um, and the knowledge they're talking the, the knowledge that they take it to be a means to, is, uh, is to direct self knowledge. That is not correct. As Bhagavan made clear, Vedanta is a means to enabling us to know what is the means to attain that It itself the books are not we cannot know ourselves in books. we have to know ourselves within ourselves so Bhagavan Bhagavan's teaching, though it's the essence of all of Vedanta, it's very it's very revolutionary in the sense in, in that Bhagavan puts so much emphasis on practice and because his emphasis was on practice, he presented the philosophy of Advaita in a much simpler and more direct way than it had ever been presented before. If you read a text like Ulladunapadu, for example, it, it, what is revealed in Ulladunapadu, what is made clear in Ulladunapadu, you cannot find any text anywhere. But uh, explains things so clearly and so simply. Uh, for example, one thing that Bhagavan emphasised in in the older texts, it, it is generally said. But the the problem, the root problem, is avidya, ignorance. And uh, since ignorance is the problem, we can remove it only by vidya, by knowledge. Um, But people think vidya, knowledge, is to be gained from books. That is, the knowledge we gain from books is just information, just ideas. That's not going to remove our ignorance, because who is it who gains all that knowledge from books? It is ego. And according to Bhagavan, what is called a vidya is nothing but ego. Ego is itself a vidya. That is, ego is the false awareness I am Vish, I am Michael, I am whoever. That is this identification of ourselves with a body, that is ego. That is, as ego, we are always aware of ourselves as I am this body, I am such and such a person. Uh, so that that is ignorance because what we actually are is not the person we seem to be. It is just the pure awareness I am. So uh, so. Knowing ourselves as something other than what we actually are is ignorance. So, but what is referred to in the old text as avidya is nothing but ego. Bhagavan made that clear, and he also is, and he he very clearly explained the nature of ego. Um, but the nature of ego is to rise, stand, and flourish by grasping things other than itself, but to subside. And merge back into its source by trying to grasp itself. Um, so Bhagavan ex- explained the very heart of, the very core principles of Advaita in an extremely practical way. So what we can learn from Bhagavan, we from reading texts like uh, Nāna, uh Upadesha India. And uh, I mean, in all Bhagavan's original writings, these uh, teachings are given in one. Even in Aranyakas, Dvapancham, it's also given. What we can learn from these texts, we cannot learn from lifetimes of studying all the ancient texts because Bhagavan has made it so clear and so simple. Um, if it, if this, if what Bhagavan had taught us could be understood from all these old texts. Why does why does no one else understand it as Bhagavan has presented it? So yeah, we are very fortunate to have come to Bhagavan. Otherwise, if we were just studying all the old texts, we 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 wouldn't understand what actually is the practice, what is actually required. So Bhagavan, though he's teaching the essence of all of Vedanta, he's. We cannot say that Bhagavan hasn't brought anything new. But what Bhagavan has brought is a fresh clarity, and a clarity focused on the actual practice. Um, another uh, a point I wanted to say in your um, in what you've written, one of the existing pieces of existing literature you referred to is the Shiva Sutras. The Shiva Sutras. It's not actually Vedanta. Shiva Sutras is one of the foundational texts of Kashmir Shaivism. And though Kashmir Shaivism calls itself, it claims to be a, a Dvaita, it claims to be non-duality, it is not a real non-duality. It is in many respects, it is it is more like Vishista Dvaita or Beda Abheda Vedanta. That is, according to uh, Kashmir Shaivism, um, Shiva, that, that they refer to Brahman as Shiva. Shiva alone is real, but everything else is, is Shiva, so everything else is also real. So they they don't accept, but the world is unreal. According to uh, Advaita Vedanta, all multiplicity, in other words, this whole world, is, is that is what is called vivata, it's just an appearance. It's not real it's it just that is uh Brahma never becomes this world, it just seems to be this world, whereas according to uh sh- um uh Kashmir shaivism uh trika shaivism as it's also called uh but but Shiva actually or Shiva Shiva through his Shakti or the Shakti actually becomes the world and Shiva and Shakti are both one so the but, but, but They take the world to be real, but Shiva has actually become all this, or Shakti has become all this, and that Shakti is not other than Shiva. Um, So it's actually a far more dualistic um, system. All these different systems of philosophy, all these different um, schools of thought and their various practices, they're all moving in the right direction, but they're not in the... that, That is, Advaita is the particularly advaita as taught by Bhagavan is the most direct um way of expressing this. And the the ultimate that is there's so many practices in um in Kashmir Shaivism there are so many practices they teach and in in every school of thought there I mean no no Indian system of philosophy other than um uh, other than um, perhaps uh, Chabaka or Lokiata, that is the materialist. other than them, there was no system of philosophy that didn't have its corresponding practice. Um, the uh, Sankhya philosophy, for <coughs> example, the, the practical side of Sankhya philosophy is yoga. So all these different systems of philosophy, whether the Astika ones, all the monastic ones the Buddhism Jainism all of them uh, they all had they, that is the philosophy was there to underpin a practice um, so uh, the there are so many different practices recommended by different um, uh, different schools of philosophy but the ultimate practice the ultimate goal is to know what we actually are and to know what we actually are we need to investigate ourselves so the ultimate practice we all have to come to sooner or later is this simple practice of atmavichara taught by bhagavan so bhagavan is in 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 my view at least bhagavan is the ultimate what everything else is gradually leading people uh, towards is, is the, the essence of the essence of everything is Bhagavan's teachings. All these other systems of philosophy, all these other schools of thought, all these other the Dvaitins and the Vishistha the Dvaitins and, the, um, and the, the, all these different practices, the yogas and the uh different practices of bhakti, all these, and karma yoga, all these different things, these are all intended to suit people at different levels of spiritual development. but So these all gradually lead us towards the ultimate teaching, which is Bhagavan's teachings, and the ultimate goal. That is, everyone says moksha is the goal, but there are so many different conceptions of moksha. Uh, For for some uh, people, they believe moksha is to go to... Vaykunta um, or Goloka or uh, Kailasa, uh, uh, Shivaloka to be with uh, with our beloved Lord. They take that to be moksha. So there's so many different understandings of moksha. What so many different understandings of what is the goal of spiritual life? What Bhagavan has taught is is the ultimate goal and the ultimate path. So we are very very fortunate to have come to Bhagavan. And we shouldn't confuse Bhagavan's, te- we shouldn't think that Bhagavan's teaching. Bhagavan is just repeating what everyone else has said. But uh, Bhagavan's teachings is the essence of everything else, but it's presented in a, such a fresh and clear way. Um, we we cannot, um, there's, there are no other teachings but are are, are comparable to Bhagavan in their simplicity, clarity, and in being so practical and leading us so directly to our goal. This is, as Bhagavan said, this is the direct path for all. Not everyone is ready for this, but ultimately, we all have to come to this path. So we 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 are very very fortunate to have come to Bhagavan, and we if we. If we want to appreciate how fortunate we are, we need to go deep into his teachings. We need to study his teachings very carefully and deeply. And most importantly of all, we need to put them into practice because we can only understand his teachings to the extent to which we put them into practice. We cannot understand them merely by reading the books. It's only to the extent to which we put them into practice that what Bhagavan has written and taught it will be meaningful to us. It will become the, the deep inner meaning of all his teachings becomes clear to us to the extent to which we go deep into the practice. So, um, those of us who have been attracted to Bhagavan are supremely fortunate. This is the this is the ultimate. Um, we we are so to speak on the last. We everyone every jeeva. From the greatest sinner to the greatest saint, all are on the spiritual All are on the spiritual journey. Uh, it's just those who are the, the great sinners are just at the beginning of their journey. The great saints are near the end of their journey. That's the difference. Mm-hmm. But we're all on a spiritual journey. Once we come to Bhagavan and uh, accept Bhagavan's teachings and begin to try to follow them, we are on the last leg of our journey. So Michael, we are supremely fortunate.
3: Could I ask a question about this?
0: Yes, certainly.
3: Uh, and and I'm interrupting only because this very point that you've stressed now, by my count, half a yes. dozen times in the last 10 minutes, having to do with self-inquiry. Yes, his teachings are important. Yes, they're comprehensive. Yes, the attraction is, seems to be permanent for me. I can't yes. imagine myself anywhere else. But I've had this lingering, nagging concern about what I see as his core practice. Teaching self inquiry. Uh, I wrote this out so I can say it as clearly as possible. Ramana yeah. says that the purpose is to know ourself. hence, he emphasized the practice of self inquiry as much as you can do it. But there seems to be very little discussed in detail about the exact manner in which we can investigate ourselves correctly. I was doing it incorrectly, thinking that the answer has to be, well, I'm pure awareness. Who am I? Well, I'm not this. I'm not that. I'm not that. I, I'm the I. Yes. I heard this discussed by just, just yesterday by David Godman on a podcast as I walk around the town here, that he spent the first several years of his attraction to Ramana Maharshi not knowing how to do self-inquiry correctly. Yes. I was so happy to hear that. He did it superficially, as I've been doing it up until recently. I finally learned and was bothered that there was no recipe of, he called it a one, two, three, four steps on how to do self-inquiry in the best way possible. He later concluded that there is no recipe for it. He finally concluded that one must learn this by themselves, which is which I'm happy to say I've come to do. But what's your take on that? I mean, that's a core principle. And yet it's easier said than done that, yes, I understand what self-inquiry is.
0: Yes, um, that is the term Atmavichara. It's often translated as self-inquiry. I prefer to translate it as self-investigation because it, it is inquiry in the sense of investigation, not inquiry in the sense of asking. Um, in an investigation, when you start an investigation, where the investigation is going to lead you is not clear. If you knew where it was going to lead you, there'd be no need for the investigation. That is an investigation is a, is a a journey of discovery. If, if if scientists are investigating something, they, when they start off, they don't know where that their investigation is uh, going to lead them. As they Mm -hmm. go deeper and deeper in their investigation, more and more, Uh, is revealed to them and then the way becomes clearer and clearer it's like that with any investigation Um, if police are investigating a crime they initially just have a, a little bit a few clues to go on And as their investigation goes on, they gather more and more evidence, more and more information, and slowly, slowly, it becomes clearer what what, what, the way they're going. It's like this with any investigation. So this is a path of self-discovery. We are investigating ourselves to discover what we actually are. And we are not only in order to discover what we actually are, we have to discover how to discover what we actually are. So all this is... That as we go deeper and deeper in this practice, but what the practice is becomes clearer and clearer to us. Um, the reason, but but that is, Bhagavan has given us lots, plenty of pointers towards what this practice is, but. Because the practice practice cannot be adequately explained in words. For example, I can say the practice is just being self-attentive. But what does it mean to be self-attentive? In order to understand what it means to be self-attentive, we first need to understand have have at least some idea of what is meant by self. Now, I I seem to be this body. I seem to be a person called Michael. So I seem to, this person is a a body and a mind and uh, what is generally called five sheaths, uh, body, life, mind, intellect, and will. These are are called the five sheaves. This is what I now seem to be. So if, if I haven't thought deeply about this, if someone tells me I have to investigate myself, what am I to investigate? Am I to begin investigating this body um, am I to start studying um, anatomy and physiology? No, obviously not, because this body is not what I actually am. Um, uh, uh, am I to study the mind? Am I to study the thoughts? Am I to study? Uh, so we, we first need to understand what we are not and in order to understand what we actually are. So we are not we, we need to understand And it's not just that we are told, you are not the body, you are not the mind. We need to understand, now my present experience is, I am this body, I'm sitting here, I'm talking. So when my experience, I am this body, is so, uh, so clear and so deeply rooted, we need to understand why this body is not what we actually are. So re- there are reasons given. That is, if this body were actually what I am, I couldn't be aware of myself without being aware of this body. That is, if if I and this body are one and the same thing, whenever I'm aware of I, I must be aware of this body. But I'm aware of myself in in uh in dream without being aware of this body then i'm aware of some other body which seems to be the same body but it's actually a different body so then am i the mind because it's the same mind but experiences waking and dream uh no because i exist even in sleep and i'm aware of my existence in sleep without being aware of this mind so we need to bear this is what in in Vedanta, in Advaita, uh, is called by by different um, ways of dis- of of, um, of reasoning to understand what we are not. The, the, another way is Drissiya Vivika. We are not anything that is perceived. We are the perceiver of everything. So all, all these all these are means to help us to understand what we are. Once we understand, that we are not any object we're not any phenomena we're not any of these things that we take ourselves to be we are just the basic awareness i am then we can begin our investigation because what are we to investigate what are we to attend to we're to attend to only this basic awareness i am but i am is not an object so we are so used to attending to objects when we are told to attend to yourself attend to i am we. Our, our natural tendency is to look for some object, something that is called I am. Obviously, I am is not a thing. So we, we, we need to. We need to study Bhagavan's teachings carefully in order to have a clear understanding, because we can put them into practice only to the extent to which we understand them. But we can understand them only to the extent to which we put them into practice. So we have to. We we don't wait till we've understood Bhagavan's teaching perfectly before we practice. We start practicing. As we practice, we but teachings, the Bhagavan's words become more and more meaningful to us. So this is a process of investigation. It requires a deep, clear and subtle understanding. But the deep, clear and subtle understanding comes cannot come just from reading the books. We need to put it into practice. This is where the, 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 more, the so-called traditional Advaitins, or traditional Vedantins, as they call themselves, where they go wrong. They think they can get the clarity just from reading books. The real clarity, the deep clarity, yes, we can get clarity to a certain extent. By reading the books, but the clarity we get is just a conceptual understanding. It's only at the surface level of the intellect that we are understanding. For it to become a deep, deep understanding, a deep inner clarity, we need to put it into practice. So uh, the though Bhagavan has given us many pointers, in order to understand these pointers. We need, to, we need to try to apply them. The more we try to apply the pointers, the clearer the meaning of the pointers become. So this is not, if it, as Bhagavan said, if, when someone once asked Bhagavan, Bhagavan, how, how to do this? Bhagavan said, do you need to be shown the way inside your own home? Perfect. If if the way were objective, it could be explained objectively, but this is not an objective path. This is a subjective path, so it cannot be shown objectively. But Bhagavan's words are pointers, but we need to think deeply about them and understand deeply what he is saying to understand what they're pointing at. It
3: seems to me we need to learn how to investigate, which is what you're talking about right now. I first learned this by accident, by coincidence. uh, We've been in discussions in this group since it started uh, two dozen times on vasanas, on tendencies, on their influence, on their control, on how they come to us, whether in this lifetime, early in lifetime, or if you believe in previous lifetimes and previous lifetimes. It's only been rather recently that I decided to examine some of my own vasanas, which I recognized I didn't care for. They led me to practices and thoughts and uh, things that I that didn't seem to serve me or maybe served me poorly, and I I put it together. This this is what self investigation is about. Root these things out, or start to recognize them, or start the process of rooting them out, and and you're drawing yourself closer to knowing the truth of who you are. But it's taken me all these years to put that together. And nobody seems to talk about the way in which if I were a gold digger or digging for oil and I'm over here in this left field digging it for the last three years, somebody comes along and says, hey, don't you know how to read the signs where where oil really is? It's over there in that field. You're in the wrong field. But nobody seems to do that with self-investigation to explain it like you just (sighs) did.
0: Yeah, but because this is a very subtle and inward process, we we as David said, we ultimately we've each got to learn it for ourselves. We plenty of help we're given by Bhagavan. Bhagavan gives us all the pointers we require, but because this is a very deep and subtle path, the pointers are very deep and subtle. We can read Bhagavan's words without really understanding what he's saying. So we've got to, we've got to read what, he's, what he has written very carefully, consider it very carefully, try to apply it into practice, and slowly, slowly, it will become clear to us what he is talking about, what is, what, what is the practice he is pointing us all towards.
1: Thank you for that. I have a question, uh, Michael. Yes. So, I mean, uh, this is more a personal actual experience. Uh, I think uh, around uh, four or five years ago, I had been uh, practicing self-inquiry, but then I was getting more frustrated. I prayed to Bhagawan saying that, I mean, you know, doing this, uh, you kind of show me the way, right? So, in So, I was in a dream, early morning dream and then I, was, I became conscious of the self, but then I didn't have the, the body consciousness. I was just consciousness that I had the self of I am. Then I was uh, genuinely uh, puzzled that I alone was actually existing because I wasn't body conscious. And then I asked a question. I mean, it, it just came all of a sudden, like, who am I? I mean, like, you know, that who am I is a genuine Question of trying to know who who is this? Like who is only this I? I yeah. mean, I don't. Have, I'm not having a body. I mean, there was nothing else. Then that I uh, collapsed, and then I merged into a beam of a uh, light and all that, and then I just came back in a shock. I mean, I became one with. But then I'm not able after that since it has been like a four five years. Number one, I'm not able to achieve that. I mean, I'm not able to go to that point where. I am able to shed my uh, body awareness, okay? Because if I do self-inquiry now, all I am thinking of this body and breathing and all that. And the second one is, I'm not able to come to a a point where I could uh, block out all the vasanas and all that and just have that one single pointed uh, focus of eye. Like I couldn't get to that i And then, I mean, so, so the way I'm thinking is, I have to first go to that uh, single-pointedness of I and then ask the question, is that the thing? or So, okay, so maybe to ask uh, Ted's question in actually another way, if a six-year-old is uh, coming to you who has not heard of Ramana Magrashi or all his uh, teachings and books, if, assume that person hasn't read anything. Okay, what advice would you give to the six year old uh, to practice the self inquiry? So, so the yeah, so what I am having the trouble is, I mean, I am doing the self inquiry of uh, focusing on the like uh, genuinely, okay, wondering about the sense of I, who am I? And then it goes to a calm state for a few seconds. And then I quickly focus on actually external things. Yeah. Uh,
0: okay. Um, whether it's a six-year-old or a 6 year old I wouldn't say anything to anyone unless they ask me. According to what is asked, I would say. So it's, I would try to explain this only to someone who is genuinely curious to know, genuinely wants to know how to investigate myself um but but the uh, what i would say would depend upon what i'm asked obviously the teaching there's no formula for what is to be taught to everyone it is according to what the, the level at which the questions are pitched um but that's just an aside um coming to your main point um what we are seeking in this path, we are not seeking any experience. You have just described an experience you had. Any experience that the experience you had it was something that came and went. Whatever comes and goes is not real. What we are seeking to investigate is the one thing that is ever present, namely ourselves. I. This the, the this basic awareness, this fundamental awareness, I am, never appears or disappears. It is ever shining. So we are not seeking any new experience. Uh if we've had any experience in the past, but came and went, that is that that may we may have been. That may be the result of our going deep, uh, deeper within, but it is not the final thing. The final thing is what is here and now. You, you said, I'm not able to reach that I-ness or something to that effect. The I-ness you're trying to reach, you or yourself, the I that says, I am not able to reach that, is itself uh, the I that we are, that we are seeking to reach. So we are not, we are not seeking anything but is not already in our experience. Bhagavan often used to say, if jnana were a new experience, something; if, if it were a new knowledge, something that we, we didn't already have, if we achieve it, we will sooner or later lose it, because whatever comes has to go. What we are seeking is not something new, we are seeking what is ever-present. What is ever-present is only I. So there's never a moment in our life when we are not aware of I. So we are not looking for any experiences. When you wrote your question uh, uh, in the email, one of the things you wrote is, what was it that made you dedicate your life to understanding Bhagavan's teachings? Was it due to some phenomenological or psychedelic experience? It wasn't, it was due to one simple experience, the experience I am. That experience, I didn't get that experience only after coming to Bhagavan, but Bhagavan pointed out to me, that is what is real. That is what is the the center of everything. That is the heart. That is the heart we are seeking, is what is ever shining within us as I am. So, uh, <laughs> we are not seeking any new experience now we there is never a moment when we are not aware i am the problem now is we are not aware just i am we are aware i am vish i am michael i am such and such a person i know this i don't know that um so all these other things, we all these other knowledges, experiences, we have superimposed upon this one basic awareness, I am. So in order to know ourselves as, as we actually are, we need to uncover this I am. It it is covered not in the sense that it is we don't but we don't know I am, but because we know I am as something other than what it is we 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 don't know it as it actually is so we can know ourselves as we actually are only by investigating this i am which is ever present so let any number of experiences come and go they shouldn't be any concern of ours what is it but that exists throughout all experiences, that exists throughout the waking state, throughout the dream state, throughout the dreams, the, the, the state of sleep, throughout um, whatever experience may come or go, the one underlying experience is the experience I am, the fundamental awareness I am. That is what we are investigating.
2: Michael, I want to jump in here. Thank you. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> Even exp- even expressing I am or trying to feel I am has a sense of duality to it. Like it's something other than what I'm aware of that I am. Then it's and not it, I. <laughs> I know it's not. But that's what the point I'm trying to lead up to is. Is is uh, it seems like if there's ever an answer that comes up to any question, I know that's not the right place to be because that's ego absolutely and that whenever i'm looking for something that's also ego yeah and so the answer lies in not looking and you talked about all these investigators the psychiatrists or that these are all trained professionals looking for for following their following their example yeah. we're not trained professionals so when i look at when i do inquiry The best i can come up with on my own imagination is just be just be don't look for anything don't try to experience anything ignore any experience that comes up and just be
0: uh yes yes um you you say you say we we shouldn't look we shouldn't look for anything we should look at what we actually are we that is we, you, you can look for something that you don't know, but we always know I. So we're not looking for anything new, but we should be looking at ourselves. We should attend to ourselves. The reason being, as you say, ultimately, our aim is just to be, to be as we actually are. But what, what actually are we? we? Our real nature is just pure awareness. Pure awareness means awareness that is not aware of anything other than itself. So, so long as we are aware of anything other than ourselves, we are aware of ourselves as something other than pure awareness. We are aware of ourselves as the knower of whatever we know. Um, so, we we need to withdraw our attention from all other things uh, in order to be aware of ourselves alone. But merely withdrawing our attention from all other things. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient because every day when we fall asleep, we withdraw our attention from everything else. And so we subside in sleep. But we we again wake up because ego isn't destroyed. So in order to destroy ego, we not only need to withdraw our attention from all other things, we need to attend to ourselves, We need to attend to our being. So how can we be what we actually are? We can be a, we can be being only by attending to being. That is, the more we attend to our being, the more ego subsides and we remain as we actually are. So the ultimate teaching is sumeru just be. But how to just be, the, the means to just be is to hold on to self attentiveness to hold on to our being, to attend only to our being. So we're not looking for our being because we already know we are. We are looking at our being. But what is looking at our being? What does it mean to attend to our being? What does it mean to attend to I am? That is very subtle. Uh, One way I sometimes explain it for people who, who are questioning me about this is we are always aware I am. But though we are always aware I am, We neglect I am because we're more interested in other things. If you go to a cinema, you're always looking at the screen, but you never notice the screen. You notice only the pictures on the screen. Because why you go to the cinema? Because you want to see the pictures. You don't go to a cinema just to sit and look at an empty screen. You go to look at the pictures. So because of our interest in the pictures, it seems to us that we never even notice the screen, but actually we're always looking at the screen. The screen here is "I am." We though we are always aware "I am," we are negligently aware "I am" because we're more interested in all the phenomena, but are superimposed upon this fundamental awareness "I am." So we. Instead of being negligently self-attentive, we need to be attentively, sorry, instead of being negligently self-aware or negligently aware I am, we need to be attentively aware I am. This is as far as we can go in words, pointing it out. But each one of us has to find for ourselves. But it's very important we understand we're not looking for anything, because if you're looking for something, it's something that you don't already know. We, we are not looking for something. We are looking at what is ever-present, namely our own being. And only by looking at our being can we be as we actually are. Is that helpful? Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's sufficient. If it's sort of helpful, it's, it's something for you to work on. <laughs> because we can, these things can become clear to mm. us only to the extent to which we put it into practice.
2: Uh, well, it just seems like holding on to I am still feels like some type of
0: dual function. Yeah, it, it, that, that is because the, the nature of the mind is that, that is the nature of the mind to always divide. What actually exists is our own being, but we've divided up seemingly not really divided. We cannot divide it. We are indivisible, but we seemingly divided ourselves as all these phenomena. So it's always the nature of the mind or ego to be objectifying, to be dividing. But we, that's why we try to hold more and more onto our being, not, not to anything other than ourselves, but to ourselves alone. How to do so? <laughs> We can, we we. It's only by practice, but it becomes more and more clear to us what it means to hold on to our being. But that even makes it more complicated
2: taking that out into daily life. If you're concentrating on on being or I am, I'm oblivious to what's going on around this body,
0: and yet I have to be aware to function. In all. The functioning will go on according to destiny. If you are holding on to your being, everything will happen just as it was meant to happen. Whether you hold on to your being or not, everything is happening as it's meant to happen. But but when we don't hold on to our being, we're constantly interfering I think
2: this comes back, for me, is like we're all aware anyhow, we're
0: all enlightened
2: already, and we think we don't know it, but we really do, and we're just kind of like trying to find
0: something that there isn't there to find. Well, we're, no, we're trying to find something that is already there, that is ever there, that we ever know, but which is seemingly obscured because of everything else that we've superimposed upon it. Yes, enlightenment, jnana, is our very nature. That that is, we are nothing but pure awareness. But we have superimposed all, awareness of all other things is superimposed upon this basic awareness I am, which is the pure awareness. And the first thing that is superimposed is ego, the false awareness I am this body. And only in the view of ego, all other things appear. So that's why Bhagavan wants us to tackle the very root and we can tackle this root only by holding on to a source from which this root sprouts, namely our own being.
1: Michael, so the the thing is to not have any kind of expectations, right, while we do self-inquiry, right? Like you know, we we should not be expecting some sort of uh a miracles or anything, no, right? Even no. having that, even having any kind of expectation of something to happen will be an obstruction. Things that happen, they happen and they
0: unhappen. <laughs> that is, they, they, it, All happenings are passing. They're all part of a passing show. We are not looking for anything to happen. We are looking for what is ever. We are looking for our own being, which we're ever aware of. It's not even looking for, as I say. We should be looking at our being. The more we look at our being, the more we look deep within ourselves, deeply at ourselves, the clearer, the more the clarity of awareness will shine brightly.
1: So I think the major challenge, uh, people have who grow up in a more capitalistic or uh, pro-money oriented society is that uh, we do all these actions in the purpose of achieving something yes. that is uh, not in our hands at the moment. Like like say, I want to get a Porsche car or something which yes. I don't have and which I'm uh, working so hard to achieve it. So, All our actions, okay, since the day we are born is for doing something to get something that we don't have. Whereas the whole uh, crux of Ramana Maharshi's teaching is that I'm not doing, okay, anything and and for which I already have it. So, but then which I'm not aware that I already have it. So, this is the opposite of the things that we normally do in our day-to-day life. I think this aspect, it makes it much harder because our whole uh, mindset and uh, thinking is that I have to do something so that I can achieve something that I don't have. Exactly. Whereas in this case, I don't have to do anything and I already have it. Yeah, so exactly. That's exactly. A cool challenge. And,
0: and this is not just a problem of our modern age. This has always been a problem. A thousand, um, three or 400 years ago, Adi Shankara wrote, this, this, um, this, this jnana cannot be attained by of any number of crores of, of karmas. That means any action of by mind, speech, or body. By, by no action can we achieve this. Why? Because it is, not, it is not the fruit of an action. It is our own being. So we can know it only by being it. And in order to be it, we need to investigate our own being. So this this investigation is not a doing, it is a cessation of all doing. By holding on to our being, ego, the doer, subsides. Thank you, To to the extent to which we go deep in this practice, to that extent, is all all action uh, subsiding. Action subsides to the extent to which the doer subsides. The doer is ego.
4: Michael, I, I sense uh, in this, as, as we are listening to today, I, I sense where I think an important part of the frustration arises, uh, where a seeming conundrum arises. And that that is that at the same time, that we are recognizing that what what we are what we are um, what we are looking to see is what is always already shining yes. as I am. Um, and, and yet, and yet we are also being told that we have to we have to go go deeper and deeper so there is both we're being told both a doing and a not doing at the same time and i i know that it has created frustration for me at times um uh, and and I sense in others as well, and and um, and so I've been I've been trying to find how to step outside of that of that conundrum, um, and and recognizing that an important part of this process is is what is called grace. And, and 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 that um, as the grace has its way with us, the 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 capacity to step outside of the conundrum will will arise, um, and and it it will become within our. Um, capacity to to step outside of this. Um, so so that's what for myself, more and more what I have I've been surrendering, so to speak, surrendering to allow grace to to show me, to reveal how how, you know to to allow it to unfold um, it, it, exactly as as it, as it as it will so any so I mean that's part of my my question um, is to know uh, um I'd like to know a little more about uh, what specifically Bhagavan had to say about grace. <laughs> and, that's one, one question, and I would, would, um, I'd also like a, a little bit more, a clarification, when you give the, the definition of ego, um, the part of it that I wrote down here, I, I, I was missing the first part about the rise, stand, and flourish by grasping what is not itself. And, and and so I like the, the, the first part of how that that, um, that statement is made, and and um, so and and the word in 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 that that I'm focusing on is the word grasping, the grasping part, which which my 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 understanding of it is that that is that is pointing to identification. That when we are identifying, I, we are identifying with the the objects, anything that is objective, whether it be body, mind, or sensations, that 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 is where, where ego is formed, seemingly formed, and that the the being of I am gets caught in, in, into that into that identification into that grasping. So, uh, sorry, it's a little complicated there. So,
0: two questions: grace and ego. Right. Okay. Um, yes, there's a lot to be said on this. Um, what Bhagavan had to say about grace. If we understand Bhagavan's teachings correctly, all his teachings are about grace. Grace is, um, I mean, so it's a bit difficult to know where to begin as far as talking about what Bhagavan said about grace. One thing Bhagavan said about grace is grace is the beginning, the middle and the end. That is, it is grace that has drawn us to this path. It is grace that leads us along this path, but motivates us to follow this path. And eventually, it is grace that will swallow us. So everything is grace. Grace is the infinite love that Bhagavan has for us as himself. That is, in Bhagavan's view, we are nothing other than himself. So he sees us as himself and therefore loves us as, as himself. And it is his that infinite love that he has for us as himself that we experience as his grace. Bhagavan and his love are not two different things. He, he is love itself, so he is grace itself. So grace is Bhagavan himself. And Bhagavan is our own real nature. So, yes, yes. Um, Michael so r- right
4: there I, I I just this is just mm-hmm. as a little feedback um i I find it confusing when you are using the words of himself um, mm-hmm. uh, because I think that that gets that creates a confusion because there is only one self yeah. there is only <laughs> the self right and right. and, and and I'm sorry, I don't mean to be nitpicking, but, you know, the, the, uh, this group is is so deeply earnest and sincere. This group wants so deeply to truly understand. Yeah. And, and so I think that any time, you know, our words are so, so important yes. that even, even a single word can kind of throw us a little bit off off base. So, it, for me, if you could use the one self rather than himself, I, I, I'm not. I, I know that there is no, there. You know, there, there was no other person
0: <laughs> in yes. Bhagavad. Yes. Uh, um, okay. Yeah, I, I, appreciate what you're saying, but the thing is, when we, we, we need to understand an inherent that is language is inherently limited like language we we are talking in the language of duality and we really uh we we when we are using words there's inevitably dualistic implications. That is why we need to see beyond the words that are used to what is underlying the words. Um, Earlier, when you were starting your question, you were talking about the conundrum of of doing and non-doing. It is words that make it seem to be... When we describe it in words, when we describe this practice in words, it inevitably seems to be a doing because words cannot adequately... Describe being. Be, being is beyond the mind, beyond words. It is what underlies everything. So, we inevitably, when we're using language, we are. Language is the language of duality. The language, as Bhagavan said, the language of non duality is silence. So, since we're communicating on the level of language, that's on the level of thoughts, we inevitably are using words that can be interpreted dualistically, uh, that seem to be dualistic, but we are, we are pointing at something which is beyond that. So we need to see not the words themselves, but what the words are pointing towards so when i refer to bhagavan as himself when we are taught or oh, or oh god or oh grace we talk about grace itself it's as if grace is something other than ourselves. the point i was coming to the point i was trying to make is bhagavan and grace are not two different things and bhagavan and our soul are not two different things. Bhagavan is our own real nature, so grace is our own real nature. So grace is not something that comes from outside. Grace is what is ever shiny in our heart as I am. Grace is our own being. Grace is our own awareness. Awareness, that is the pure awareness I am, that is grace. Um. I, but as I say, grace is also love. So it, it, that is when we we are talking about that which cannot be talked about we are talking about that which is beyond words beyond thoughts so whatever words we are using we are just trying to point towards that so you you asked what bhagavan had said about grace so i'm trying to give some idea of what he i mean bhagavan said a lot about grace directly and indirectly as i say all his teachings are about grace because grace is yes. is our real nature we 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 are grace um that is why to, yield, to surrender ourselves to grace, to yield ourselves to grace, to open our heart to grace, we have to turn within. The more we turn within and subside, the more we are merging back into grace, the more we are allowing grace to engulf us, to, to swallow us. Yes. Um, so, it, we, as I say, we, we cannot talk about this subject without using words, and words inevitably can be interpreted as uh, dualistic. When we talk about Bhagavan, for example, it's as if Bhagavan is a third person. We say he or himself. But though he... Bhagavan is our own reality. Bhagavan is what we actually are. He appeared outwardly in human form to give us teachings, and his teachings reveal but he is ourself. He is what is ever shining in our heart as I. And his love for us, he doesn't love us as another. We see Bhagavan as if he's another. He doesn't experience him. He doesn't see us as other. He doesn't see anything other. He sees only himself. So but, he loves everything as himself. Yes. Because but, I'm saying but, uh, he, I have to say himself. But yeah. we, we have to understand when I'm what I'm referring to as he is ourself? It is. It is I. It is whatever shining yes. in our heart is I. Yes,
4: so,
0: but, but we, similarly,
4: uh, couldn't when we we could even say every one of us is appearing, is appearing as a teaching of oneself. It. it, it we. We. None of us is other than the one than oneself. Yes. And so.
0: Yes. It, yes. Okay. Yes. Thank you. And grace is also not other. There is otherness is false. Any otherness, any division is false. So grace is our own real nature. So we can, we can, without grace, we would not even be, the very fact that we're here talking about this subject is because of grace. It is, otherwise we'd be, we'd be, roaming about the world, seeking ways to earn more money or to right, seek this pleasure right, or that we, pleasure. The very sure. fact that we've been drawn to this to yes. this path, the very fact that we are talking about this subject, this is grace. Yes, grace is, I, I agree. Uh, so um, grace is the one subject, as I say, where to begin? It is such a vast subject, but it's okay. also such a simple subject. If yes. you want to summarize grace in one word, well, we can summarize in two words and then summarize it in one word. We can summarize it aptly in two words I am. Yes. If you yes, want to reduce okay. it to one word, you can choose either I or am. It's the same because I and am okay. are one <laughs> of the same. Yes. So that is grace. Yes. Grace is oneness. Grace is fullness. Grace is everything. And grace yes. is no thing. It is the only thing there is. Yes. So, That's why I said, eventually, it is grace alone that will swallow us. And that Ah, grace is Bhagavan. That grace is our own real nature.
4: Yes. yes. But
0: you You are absolutely right. Grace is also what that is. The more we look within ourselves, the more our mind is. That is, we ourselves are the original light the light of pure awareness that illumines the mind and enables the mind to know other things. So the light of all lights, the the physical light is known by the mind light, the mind light, the mind light shines by the original light of pure awareness i am so that original light of pure awareness that is grace and that is what we are turning our attention towards when we look back within so but when we go within uh attending to ourselves, we are um we are so to speak bathing in light so the more we turn within the more clarity will dawn will will we the more yes. our mind will be suffused with clarity yes yes i, I th- thank you michael that that was very helpful thank and in, only in that clarity can we recognize the distinction between being and, do, and doing
3: Michael, the key here
0: is... But, what because that about clarity is itself being. Yes.
3: I think the key here is what you said about 10 minutes ago when you said we need to see beyond words. Yes. Not one word, not two words, but all words.
1: All words.
3: So when, I hear, when I hear that, isn't the term every one of us, I think of that as also being false. Is that not dualistic, every one of us?
0: Yes, yes, inevitably. We... we we, we cannot. Words are dualistic. Yeah, words are dualistic. We, what, words. What, what can you say about the one?
3: <laughs> There's it, only awareness, and you it, said it's only aware of self. Yeah, of, of even itself.
0: to say even to say one, you're it, distinguishing one from many. That yeah. is why this is this path is called a not two. That's why I've we, given
3: up about the rest of the world. Yeah. I mean, there's seven billion of us.
0: Yes, 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 yes. But as soon as we rise as ego, we project all this multiplicity. What is that? In verse 13 of Uludunaptu, U- 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 Bhagavan says beautifully, Jnana mam tane me, oneself who is Jnana. Jnana means pure awareness. One self who is pure awareness alone is real. Nanavam jnanam knowledge of multiplicity or awareness of multiplicity is ignorance.
3: It does make me feel somewhat schizophrenic, and I say that cautiously, because I'm I'm with Ramana as much as I can be, and I'm much farther ahead than I've ever been before in my life. But as soon as I turn my gaze out towards the world, let's say the suffering, let's say the dejected, let's say those who suicide those who are murdered, those who are raped. I don't know how to handle that. And I think Ramana tells us, don't go there.
0: Exactly, exactly.
3: Thanks for what you've been saying. It's so clear. Yep. No, so,
0: so Melissa, can, can I just finish? Because Melissa, there's quite a lot to say on uh, what Melissa said. So, uh, regarding what you said about uh, being and doing, attending to anything other than ourself is a doing, because it's a movement of our attention away from ourselves towards other things. That is a doing. Attending to ourself is not a doing. It is a... Cessation of all doing, a subsidence of all doing. That is why Bhagavan talked about sinking within. Often in English books, it's translated as diving within. But diving is somehow it implies something very active. But the word, but is trans, the words that are translated as diving can equally well be translated as sinking. And I think sinking conveys the idea intended by Bhagwan better. The more we attend to ourselves, the more we naturally sink within. Um, the, the more we we begin to drown in that inner light, the light of pure awareness, which is grace.
4: Yes. Um, <clears throat> yes. It, it, at my at my present level of understanding, um, I, I find that it is, for me, a relaxing, a relaxing of the mind, away from objects, whatever you know, whether it be body, mind, or yeah. sensation, or relaxing away from object to recognizing that. All objects are arising within the infinite subject, the infinite I am, the, the awareness being yes. in, in which it is all arising. And, and at, at, the present, at this present moment, that's, that's as far as I can go. And, and I, I, I let that be it for, for, for this moment. And at some, perhaps it will change. Perhaps it, you know, yes. would, However, it goes. That's sufficient. Yes, at, at,
0: at this moment. Yes, that is true. But Bhagavan has refined, has explained this even more deeply. All arisings arise in whose view? In the view of ego. Ego is the subject. Ego is itself an arising because we, are, we arise from sleep and we subside back in sleep. So, ego is itself, all other aris- arisings arise in the view of ego. Ego also arises. Ego arises by attending to other things. If it turns its attention back on itself, it subsides. And now we come to the second part of your question, which is yes. about uh, what I said about uh, ego rises, stands, and flourishes by grasping things above than itself. Yes. This is, uh, this is a paraphrase of what Bhagavan says in verse 25 of Uludunaptu. What he says in that verse is, grasping form, it comes into existence. Grasping form, it stands. Grasping form, uh, sorry, grasping and feeding on form, it flourishes abundantly. Leaving form, it grasps form. If sought, it takes flight. Such is the nature of this formless phantom ego. Ego, when he says ego is formless, that means it has no form of its own. Without a form of its own, it is not dis... it, It is... It, it is it is not just dis- that is it's only form but distinguishes one thing from another yeah. so yes. in its native formless condition ego has no separate existence it's our own being it's our own reality but it comes into existence as ego grasping form yes I, i'm my my
4: my sense of that is that the um there it you know what we call what we call mind or, or, yes. or, or ego is is really it, it ha- as you say as you point oh. out the there is no it has no form it is it's a collection mm. it, it's a it, it, you know it's a conditioned a conditioned collection of of um, of thoughts uh that has uh that has in a sense taken on <laughs> is what seems to be a life of its own but yes. but never a av- never actually has when we look at it closely as you as you point out it it takes flight there's yes. nothing there
0: yeah but it, it is not even a collection because uh, the co- collection of what a collection of Ports. Right. No right. It's a, it, it is,
4: You're it right. Is. It's only the present the present the thought is that right now is happening. Yeah. You're that's true. So there, to, there is to understand
0: this verse uh twenty-five yes. uh, properly, it's useful to also consider the previous verse, verse twenty-four. What okay. Bhagavan says in verse twenty-four is the insentient body does not say I. What he says literally means does not say i but that yeah. implies it's not aware of itself as i and what he means yeah. by body is is not just the physical body it's all the five sheaths so it includes mind and everything so that does not say i because it's it's jada it's not aware that if the body is not aware the, 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 life is not aware the mind is not aware. Mind, uh-huh. mind in the sense of all the other thoughts are not aware yeah. the intellect yeah. is not aware the will is not aware so these yeah. are all judder so they don't they are not aware of themselves as i uh, so that's what he means when he said the being sentient body does not say i mm-hmm. and then in the next sentence he says such it does not rise such it such sat means being Chit Mm -hmm. means awareness. Satchit means pure being, pure awareness. That is what we actually are. That is I am. So, Satchit does not rise. So, on one hand, you've got the body that is not aware of itself as I. On the other hand, you've got Satchit, which does not rise, Uh, but always aware of itself just as I am, because it's pure being, pure awareness. In between, one thing, I rises as the extent of a body. Be- this one thing I but rises the extent of a body, because it rises, it is not Satchit Because uh, it, it is aware of itself yeah. as I, it is not the body. So it's neither the body nor satchit. <laughs> it rises in between partaking of uh, the properties of both. Like satchit, yes. it's aware of itself as I. Like the body is limited in time and space. So it is yes. neither this nor that. And then in the <laughs> next in the next sentence he says, this is Chit Jadagranti, Bondage, uh, um, um, um chit bandham, uh jivan jiva soul nupame uh-huh. the subtle body um uh uh Ahandai, ego, uh, ichamsara, this samsara, manam, mind. So what he means by chit jada granti is chit is that satchet that pure awareness, I am. But mixed what, with adjuncts. Yeah, right. but jada yes, is the body. Yes. When these two get conflated together, when uh-huh. they get entangled, the resulting yeah. not is ego. Interesting. So it is neither the body nor is it such a, but a conflation of the two, uh-huh. and this is this is bondage because we by 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 this this knot is what is binding us to the body. So this uh-huh. is bondage. This is the jiva. This is the soul. Okay. This oh, is the, um, this is the subtle body. The reason he says subtle body uh-huh. there is another big topic, but it's because in the old texts they say what. What when when the body, when the gross body dies, the subtle body goes from life to life to life. But what Bhagavan says is that subtle body is actually nothing but ego. Um, uh, Ego, a this samsara, samsara is all of this. The whole the whole of embodied existence is samsara, but it's all the root of it all is only this ego. So Bhagavan said the whole of samsara is nothing but ego. uh, And that is mind. So after that, then in the next verse, Bhagavan says, grasping form, it comes into existence. Grasping form, it stands. Grasping and feeding on form, it flourishes abundantly. Uh, Leaving form, it grasps form. Uh, If sought, it takes flight. The uh, formless phantom ego. So why does he say it's formless? Because it's got no form of its own. Ego is not the body. So yes. it, it, it doesn't have any form of yeah. its own. It's a mm-hmm. phantom, or mm. phantom, that word also means uh, evil spirit. But it, what that implies no. is it's got no substance of its own. The yes. substance is such it. The form is the body. It is neither the body nor such it, but some spurious entity that rises between <laughs> some... the two.
4: Some conflation between it's the two. It's a conflation, exactly. Th- yes, thank you, that's Michael. A- I, that's that's enough for me for right now. Thank you so much. Okay, that is that's a lot for me to ponder. Okay,
0: okay, hopefully. right, right, right. Thank
2: you. Yeah, and we only have five minutes left, so let's get to it. Oh, wow. First.
3: We we yeah yeah Michael um, yes, it seems that in my experience, the farther I go along the path of knowing, the more I experiencing not knowing like it seems the more comfortable i am with not knowing
0: the more clear i am to knowing you comment there is only one thing but we know always i am knowing anything other than i am is a false knowledge it's not real knowledge so as bhagavan said there's nothing new for us to know, but the, the, the thing is, the, what we need to do is to unknow all but we all the all the surplus knowledge. So we have to drop all the uh, awareness of all other things has to be dropped, and then the pure awareness "I am" alone remains. So this Bhagavan often used to say, "This is not a part of learning. This is a part of unlearning. We are shedding all the false knowledge." When we shed all the false knowledge, what remains is the real knowledge I am. Yeah. So true. Short and yes, sweet. Thank, thank you very much. Right. <laughs> well, thank Bhagavan. There's Bhagavan who said that. I'm just uh, pointing out what he said. <laughs> that, that is why we are not seeking to know anything new. We are seeking to know that which we already know. But we are seeking to know it as it is. Though we say it, it is I, it's not it. That is, we always know I am. But though we always know I am, it's mixed and conflated with other things. This conflation is the problem. So we need to, in order to shed everything else, we need to hold on to I am. Because all these adjuncts, all this knowledge of other things, this is not holding us. It is we who are holding this. Now I'm aware of myself as I am Michael. Is Michael holding on to me? No, Michael is Jada. I am holding on to Michael. So instead of holding on to Michael, if I hold on to I, since I'm to the extent to which I hold on to I, I'm thereby letting go of Michael. Since Michael isn't holding on to me, he drops off. So everything drops off to the extent to which we hold on to I am. So if we hold on to that basic knowledge, that basic awareness, I am, everything else will drop off. And what will then remain is what we always actually are. Yeah. So Bhagavan doesn't know anything that we don't know. In fact, Bhagavan will say we know lots of things he doesn't know. He knows the only he knows the only thing that is real, I am. We know the, the thing that is real, I am, plus so many other things. So as Bhagavan said, we have to unlearn, not to learn. We have to shed the false knowledge.
2: No wonder he seems so serene all the time because yes. he doesn't know what we know.
0: Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and and okay, Bhagavan, can I just say one more thing? Sure. Bhagavan sometimes used to joke about the the English word realization. Mm. Bhagavan said, what is real is always real. We don't need to realize it. The problem is that we have realized the unreal. Wow. So all that is required is that we unrealize the unreal and the real alone will remain.
3: <laughs> Wonderful.
0: That pretty much sums up everything we've talked about today. Exactly.
2: <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining us today, Michael. It's always a pleasure to have you here. Thank yeah.
3: right. uh, I'll i continue abiding in the
0: eye. <laughs> <laughs> what what Thank is the eye that is abiding months. in the eye? I bet two eyes, one eye abiding in another eye. <laughs> Abide as I.